Coming up on this week's show, a massive Sega leak has happened. A legendary beat-em-up comes to the Neo Geo. And we celebrate the history of first-person shooters. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, maybe you've got a holiday coming up soon, you want some good poolside reading or just something for the garden this summer. The Secret History of Mac Gaming, the Expanded Edition. Now, you can celebrate the previously untold history of gaming on the Apple Macintosh with a gorgeous 480-page hardback book featuring more than 250 Mac titles, including some games that started life on that platform that went on to be massive, Myst, SimCity, Shadowgate, and lots more, even Halo's in there too. So you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 385, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for our first show of July, right in the middle of the summer here in the UK. And of course, we're all on a bit of a high after the incredible weekend that we just had. Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, I'm pretty much floating on pure caffeine after uh, Ravi's massive event of the weekend. Of course, they kickstart the uh, first Amiga show um, that's happened in almost a decade. Joe, can we give Ravi a little round of applause for an incredibly well-organised event, Ravi? I've got to say hats off to you, mate. It was so good. Ah, oh, cheers, guys. You know, um, it was a bit of a blur for me. I'm still, I'm still trying to recover. Um, I was running around <laughs> a lot, and, and I kind of shot myself in the foot because... I really wanted to go to this event and uh, <laughs> I didn't even know what was being sold on the tables. You know, there was some cool devices and it was really cool just to see everyone have a good time. And um, I can't wait to see some of the footage come out and like some of the photos. And also it's good meeting the patrons as well. Um, really good time. What did you guys think? I really, really enjoyed it. I was kind of glued to our stand all day because of Dan, you know, Mr. Popular kept on getting like torn away and stuff like that. But um, I had a really great time, like you say, talking to a lot of patrons, a lot of people just coming over and saying they're fans of the show or even just coming over and having no idea who I am and just being like, why have you got a table of PS1 games that you're selling with an Amiga CD32 on here, what you're playing as well? Just like, And then it was just a fun day just kind of telling people what I was doing and who I was and stuff like that. But like you say, a load of patrons there, which is really awesome. A lot of friends of the show and a lot of people we've made personal friends with. Huge shout out to you all. I really want to sit here and just be like, you know, list everybody off, but, you know, Gideon, Tommy, Pete, Darren, Ian, Chris, just so many people. Really sorry if I missed people's names and stuff like that. But yeah, it was amazing. It was so fun. You know, I'd like to thank also the user groups as well and all the traders that came up and the sponsors because that whole user group section was just absolutely awesome. It was like um, I kind of left them to it and then I came back and there was all these amazing setups going on. So that that was really good to see. And uh the after party was the time that I could kind of relax. And um, yeah, that, that was mental. I think I've still got the hangover from then. We did get a message on Discord from my Gideon, one of our patrons who was at the uh, the after party. He said the highlight for him was uh, thrashing Joe at Street Fighter 2 after having six pints. That's a moment he's always going to treasure. Thrashing? <laughs> thrashing? Right. Sorry, he said beating. Sorry, beating, beating. Sorry, beating. Beat- he, quite that aggressive. he did beat me. Uh, I think he beat me twice in a row after I beat him about six times in a row, eight times in a row. Yeah, all right. Yeah, right. let's just get that out yeah, there. Yeah. But no, it was a wicked, wicked <laughs> after party as well. Um, really, really cool. Really cool venue. And it was packed. Like I got yeah, there, yeah. I got very a little bit late because um, I went home and had some dinner and saw my wife and, and my baby, you know, I hadn't seen in like two days at this point. But um, I came back out like half eight 
and uh, saw Ravi, um, who just, you just looked knackered, but you were still running around like a headless chicken. And then, um, yeah, I went into the event, like there was quite a few people outside and I went inside and it was just absolutely rammed, well over a hundred people there. And then uh, I think one of the highlights of my night, other than, you know, being thrashed on a Street Fighter 2 with Gideon, was um, I turned around at one point and um, I look at it, I was like, this music's mental. This is like full on rave happening. And I look over and Ravi's on the decks. Hoffman's on the decks. I'm really sorry I forgot his name, but you know the Game Boy guy who was playing? Uh, Harley likes music. Harley likes music. All three of you just on the decks on the stage. Like, I was like, this is mental. And like, everybody was dancing. Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. It was so good. Well, (laughs) well, you know what? Um, It it went better than I expected. And um, I'm definitely going to do it next year. So, um, yeah, if, if you missed it this time, hopefully see you next year. Yeah, and actually the uh, the event train continues um, next one, next month, uh, 19th and 20th of August. Retro Mesa, heading over to Norway. Unfortunately, that clashes with uh, a family party that I committed to about six months ago, annoyingly. Although uh, Ravi's going out there with Neil from RMC, who I did meet on Friday night for the uh, first time I've seen him in a while, and he was like... Uh, he said, Dan, you know, I'll take a bullet for you, mate. I'll have the trip to Norway if I have to go out there instead of you. He looked devastated that he had to do it. But, you know, someone's got to. Someone's got to step in. So uh, I know you and Neil are going to have an amazing time out there. So if you're in the uh, Norway area in Sandyfjord, it's always a great event uh, happening on the 19th and 20th of August. Uh, Ravi and Neil will be up there doing a few panels on stage. Uh, tickets are on sale now, so I'll put that in our show notes. If you can't make it out there, though, of course, we'll be recording uh, a few of them for the podcast as well. Now, we have got a really good show this week, and uh, we're going to be talking to a couple of mates of the show, actually, who we've had on uh, a couple of times before, but we always like catching up with uh, good friends of the podcast when they're doing new projects. And this one is something I've been looking forward to for a good few years now. Now, I'm casting my mind back to my birthday in 2019. So my, my last birthday, December 2019, before, uh, you know, all the madness in the world happened where we couldn't leave the house for two years. Um, had a great birthday event in London. And I was chatting an email to uh, a guy called Robin Block. Now, he, um, he messaged us saying that he's working on a, he had this plan of doing a, the ultimate movie about first person shooters. So I was in London, Robin's based in London, went along, met him for a coffee, had a bit of a chat to him about the project and it sounded awesome. And then I must admit, I kind of lost track of what was going on with it. And then David L. Craddock, who we've had on the podcast before, who's the author of uh, books like, you know, Long Live Mortal Kombat. He did that amazing arcade perfect book as well. He also did a book um, about Quake, didn't he, and first person shooters. And uh, Richard Moss, who did the Secret History of Mac Gaming and the Shareware Heroes book as well, turns out these guys are both working on the movie. And after three years in production, it weighs in at about four and a half hours, and it is finally finished. And my God, I watched half of it last night when they sent me a screener. If you love first-person shooters, this lives up to the title, The Ultimate FPS Documentary. So um, I thought we'd get the guys on, just for you know, a bit of reminiscing about kind of where the FPS genre came from. Find out a bit about this movie that I think, like I said, anyone that just loves video games, anyone that loves first-person shooters, whether it be modern stuff, you know, whether it be like classics like Halo or Doom, is going to find this really interesting. Because I don't know about you guys, I mean, to me, my kind of FPS journey, I really didn't really see much first-person shooters until Wolfenstein 3D. But actually... The history of it goes back over 40 years, back to the 70s. Oh, really? Yeah, I was, a, I was a very kind of Unreal Tournament guy. So I, I totally got into Unreal Tournament in that era and also Quake as well. And, um, you know, I love FPSs and just looking at the list of people that are featured in this documentary, it's just absolutely mental. Um, one of the favourite ones that they've got there is uh, Warren Spector. 
But also, yeah. I, I, I'd love to see, like, you know, they've got American McGee in there. They've got Tom Hall, Adrian Carmack as well. Um, uh, of course, you've got John Carmack in there as well. And, uh, John Romero. Yeah, John Romero. And the list goes on. You know, it's got Ken Silverman in there as well, who who developed the build engine. Um, yeah, I can't wait to watch this. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, it actually goes way back to about 1973, 1974, the game called Maze that then became Maze Wars and it kind of covers stuff like Battle Zone and even kind of some of these early games on the, on the Mac as well, like Colony. And then obviously we're going to id Software and you know, even the, the shareware model of FPS games, because I think that's quite interesting that, you know, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, they were shareware games originally, weren't they? And they made a fortune when they came out, you know, which that model, I mean, I don't know if you remember shareware, Joe, but basically it was, they give you a couple of levels free, mm. then you had to register the game, you know, the, the, send a postal order or in the case of uh, yeah. David, when we, we talked to him, he actually got his mum when he was 11 years old to ring up and give a credit card number over the phone <laughs> to its software and order the disc. So um, it was just an incredible time. And obviously, as we went through the 90s, it was the FPS really, wasn't it, that then spurred people to buy new PCs and, you know, 3D graphics cards came in and it was kind of that, you know, constantly upgrading. And even the fun aspect of FPS games as well, you know, when multiplayer came in and yeah. LAN parties. Networking, and, you know. Yeah. Even the couch stuff, you know, GoldenEye, whenever around Joe's house, always gets the N64 out, you know, blast out a bit of GoldenEye and absolutely kicks our ass when we play it. Um <laughs> But yeah, so we do cram a lot into here. So it's a real celebration, uh, reminiscing with David and Richard about the history of first-person shooters and also talking about this uh, incredible new movie that actually um, you can order from uh, today. So when the podcast comes out on Friday, so I'll put a link in our show notes if you want to check that out as well. Now, before we get into that, of course, uh, lots of news stories to keep it up to speed on. That's what we do in the first half of the podcast because, you know, it's always busy. In the world of retro, there's always lots going on, and we get that, you know, people have got lives, they've got jobs, but we save you the job, we save you the effort. So the first one this week, now, this is... <laughs> Normally we used to seeing leaks from Nintendo, but I have no idea where this has come from. This is possibly the biggest leak I've ever seen come out of Sega. Yeah, this is a... It's a funny one, isn't it? So this is a 272-page PDF that has just appeared on it's landed on sega retro wiki this week so it came out yesterday at the point of recording this um and nobody really knows where it's come from it's just appeared on there which i kind of like i like the mystery behind it um Mm. but it's a document from the mid 90s and um there's a few kind of like highlights in there you know on uh, pcgamer.com that i've got here kind of like you know what they've highlighted because obviously i've not read it 272 pages but i'm gonna have a proper look through it um, but you've got, you know, product planning reports, storyboards from games, different kind of advertisements, some business strategies in there, some reviews of games. One really interesting bit is talking about the scrap value of the 32X, how much it would be yeah. if they scrapped all the 32Xs and how much money they could make back from it. But the kind of like two of the big things that have come from it, an email from Tom Kalinsky, who was the obviously the CEO of Sega America at the time, around the time of the Sega Saturn coming out in Japan, but before it came out in America or around the same time it came out in America. And the headline is, we are killing Sony. I think it is. Yeah, we are killing Sony. Yeah. Uh, Which when I first read that, that sounded like, you know, it was a plan to kill Sony, like a plan to like take them down kind of thing. Um, but But what it is essentially is him sending an email saying how well the Sega Saturn is doing in uh, Japan. And, you know, mm. that is, it's crushing Sony. You go you go into the, you know, the shops in Japan, the stores in Japan, 
and Sega Saturn sold out everywhere and there's just stacks and stacks of PlayStations sitting on the shelves, etc. And this email, I think, is March 1995 and it points out that by the July, he'd uh, stepped down as CEO, which is kind of sad. And, you know, obviously over the years, he's kind of said it, you know, it was from kind of like, he was kind of forced out and, you know, from them forcing out the Sega Saturn in America too soon, five months early and all that kind of stuff. But it just kind of cements that, you know, people forget the Sega Saturn was actually really popular in Japan. You yeah. know, it sold a lot better in Japan and it had hundreds and hundreds of more releases in Japan than it ever did in America. Well, in why do you think that was? Do you think it was because of the like RPG connection that it had? Yeah, the, you know, I think um, Japan probably embraced uh, a little bit more of the wackiness of the Sega Saturn as well. You know, a lot of FMV games and a lot of like, uh, there was a lot of games um, that you could like bet on and gamble on and stuff like that. You know, like a lot of horse racing games and stuff and it obviously had internet connectivity over there and stuff like that so there's that element of it um, maybe then, the um video card as well because i was about that, to say uh, i was literally yeah. about to say that the video card element of it and then also there's a lot of rpgs and a lot of 2d games a lot of 2d arcade ports whereas in the western world 3d was the future the sega Saturn's such a 2d powerhouse you know and that was still kind of so you know embraced and big in japan at the time um, so quite a few contributing factors there, but I'm going off topic here. But yeah, I'm just, I'm just really interested to see where this 272 page PDF has kind of come from. Yeah, I mean, I've been through quite a lot of this. Okay. Um, I kind of skim read, you know, probably 70% of it. And it's interesting, so some stuff in here as well, they're talking about kind of how they're going to position the Saturn to go up against the PlayStation. Um, they're talking about, you know, the fact that the the price must be like close enough to the PlayStation. I think they're talking about $249 initially. They're saying that's got to be added visually and verbally. There's actually storyboards in here of planned TV adverts. Now, I must admit, I'm not all that familiar on the American Sega Saturn TV adverts, but one of them was going to be called the uh, the airport advert. And there's another one called uh, Armageddon. Oh, gosh. Um, and they're quite interesting to look at as well. And, uh, Really, they're kind of going up against, um, obviously, the N64's coming out and the PlayStation's on the market. The way they're trying to position the the Saturn is for, like, the serious games player. Mm. And they're focusing heavily on stuff like, you know, Virtua Fighter 2, uh, Panzer Dragoon as well. And they're looking at, you know, stuff like really going big on the sporting titles on there. But then further on into this document, they actually kind of break down some of the... Um, kind of the beta versions of some of these games I've seen already and kind of, you know, attack them on the areas where they're not very strong and say what needs to be done. And that there is a real urgency in this as well. And it's mentioned quite a lot through it that we need stuff like, you know, Nights into Dreams, Sonic the Hedgehog needs to be on here. We need Virtual Cop 1 and 2 needs to be on here, but we need the, the deadlines bringing forward. You know, these games need to be out six months earlier than are planned right now. And we need, you know, at least five exclusives on launch mm. um, to go up against Sony. So... Um, they're really saying that, you know, they wanted to kind of focus on the Saturn being the serious games players machine and also kind of focusing on, you know, some of the those big Sega brands as well that Nintendo couldn't, uh, that Nintendo and Sony couldn't compete with. Um, so it's interesting because, I mean, obviously around this time, the panicking about the fact that they haven't got much third party support and they're talking about the fact that some developers were siding with Sega because Sony weren't giving them the support that they wanted. But um, I think, you know, that, that distribution that obviously Sega already had in place probably looked good at the time. Mm. Yeah, before, it's, it, yeah, before it's interesting along. as well that they're talking about the retail margin here and they're saying that uh, retailers only made $15 um, per Saturn that was actually sold. Yeah, that, yeah. that that's interesting because that kind of like, you know, with the whole two ninety nine thing with the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn was three ninety nine. that just goes to show like 
that was probably as cheap as they could possibly make it then. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if, if retailers are only making $15 off it, unless, you know, Sega were making like a huge amount of money prior to that, you know, maybe, you know, it costs $200 to make and then, you know, they keep 175 and then 185 and then retailers get 15. Who knows? But I, I can't imagine that was the case. They usually, they usually sell, you know, especially these days, hardware, I guess, on the margin and then they make the money off the software, don't they? So, mm. and the transactions and stuff like that. So, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, they're even talking about the fact they want to prioritize, you know, the internet add-on. Mm. Uh, they, they want to get that ready for E3 and show that off. They thought that would be a big selling point. They want to position Sega as like, you know, a web first company, mm. you know, put a lot of focus into the website, which made sense. Sega you know, 95, 96. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that did seem like, I mean, obviously it was probably a bit early, but they weren't to know that then. But it's a really interesting document. I mean, it goes through, you can see stuff like, you know, product inventory and how much it costs for all the uh, the various components and uh, staffing issues they had, the fact that, you know, they lost three managers in the last three months and the, the impact that's going to have on quotas. And yeah, it's proper in-depth. And it's even got performance reviews and stuff in here too. So it's uh, wherever this has come, has come from, it was definitely someone who was uh, firmly on the inside or someone who's managed to uh, hack into one of Sega's servers and found all this mm. stuff on there. But wherever it's come from, if it has, obviously, we don't endorse that behaviour. But um, like we said with the Nintendo uh, leak as well, it's always interesting to uh, look into this stuff. And I wonder, because I mean, it has been that long now, 1995, 1996. It does, you know, it was an eternity ago in gaming. So I think whether Sega will be all that bothered now, maybe even, you know, someone from Sega had the permission to release it, you know. I don't know if all the staff's still around anyway. So (laughs) I don't know if it'll be relevant, yeah. But yeah, very interesting to see. Not be interesting to see if any more comes out over the next few weeks as well. So if you uh, have got a bit of time this weekend, I will link up that PDF in our show notes along with the rest of the stories at theretrohour.com. I was very pleased to see this news, um, even though I haven't got a Neo Geo, but I do love this game. I've got a Neo Geo CD, actually. But this title, unfortunately, looks like it's going to be, uh, only be on cartridge. But this is that wonderful Final Vendetta beat him up from Bitmap Bureau uh, that came out. Was it last Christmas that game came out? Uh, before? I think it was last Christmas. Yeah, I think it was last yeah. Christmas. Yeah, because I was... Uh, no, when was it? It might have been the Christmas before because I remember us playing it on the plane to Norway last year. So I think it was... Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was about a year and a half ago now I think it came out, yeah. Well, for those who didn't play it, I mean, it's basically if you love games like, you know, Streets of Rage, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, those kind of side-scrolling, what do you call them, belt-scrolling? Belt-scrolling, yeah. Games, beat up games. Uh, one of those, a modern game, um, very, very difficult. I mm. must admit, it uh, thrashes me every time I play it. I'm definitely not the best <laughs> at it. But obviously, if you're a fan of the uh, Neo Geo, I imagine that you probably got into these games. I'm probably a bit of a hardcore gamer. And it turns out they're actually going to be porting the game to the Neo Geo AES and even the MVS arcade systems as well. Yeah, this this is going to be like a real collector's piece. You know, this is kind of like, it's very rich and it's just, it's funny, it's interesting because obviously when we were all younger, when we were kids and teenagers and stuff like that, only very rich people had a, uh, a Neo Geo, a Neo, a Neo Geo AES. Everyone knew someone Every, whose cousin had Yeah, everyone knew, and, and that still is the case, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. Um, and it definitely is for the games, you know, a quick eBay search and you will see both the AES and the MVS games are really, really expensive. So it kind of goes with uh, kind of goes with the mood of things. So this is, um, it's got to be £394.80 or I think €400 Euros for this. Mm. So it is going to be quite expensive. But like I say, it comes with the territory of the, you know, the, the Neo Geo. So, like are, are these say, car- carts expensive to kind of produce then as well? I, they're like arcade boards. They're like they? arcade boards. They're massive. They're massive. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the AES one is the Neo Geo AES is the the home one. 
um, and the cartridge is probably like A5, but taller, isn't it? Like an A5 piece mm. of paper, but they're about an inch wide, aren't they? Inch deep, aren't they, Dan? And then they're about, what, about seven inches tall? They're, they're big. Yeah. They're big. And then the uh, MVS one was the the arcade board, but it was still a cartridge, but it was swappable. That's why the Neo Geo MVS was like such a lucrative, cool, ahead of the times machine in the 90s, because you could swap swap the arcade boards out easily from just like a cartridge form. It's just a massive cartridge. So it's really cool to see it come into the Neo Geo because when we spoke to them about this, when we spoke to uh, Bitmap Bureau about this, they said, you know, they needed to make this game. They wanted to make it as beautiful as possible and the animation in it because the pixel animation is absolutely fantastic. I've got it for the Switch. Um, yeah. Really, really, really good looking game. Um, really animated well. But they said, you know, they had to make sure that it could run on the Neo Geo because of it will come out on the Neo Geo eventually. And uh, it just kind of... Kind of goes to show that this hardware, which is from like what ninety three, ninety four, something like that, is just you know push you know how far you can push it and it still be on a cartridge. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, you know you get it in the box like an actual kind of like you know proper plastic box like you would back in the day. Uh, I think it's the MVS one which is more expensive. That does just come in a cardboard sleeve, um, but there is an option for an upgraded package where you know you, it, I think it's about twenty thirty pounds more where you do get it in the plastic box, but then you also get like the um, the soundtrack with it and stuff like that on CD. Um, so it's Utah Saints, wasn't it? Yeah, Utah Saints did, yeah. I think, two or three tracks on there, some boss tracks yeah. and stuff, which is really cool. But yeah, man, like £394.80, like I say, it comes with the territory of the, the Neo Geo, but still wicked to see, you know, such a kind of obscure but awesome kind of like piece of kit. Oh, that's coming from the UK as well, because it's, yeah. um, you know, you know, Bitmap Bureau. So, so that's quite interesting to see like Neo Geo stuff being produced in the UK. Hmm. I love that the uh, the MVS arcade version as well. Some of the features they list are a uh, dip switch setting sheet. So obviously you had to do the dip switches yeah. in arcades back in the day, and a reflective caution sticker. Oh, really? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, though, Joe, these are just. I mean, you know, they're going to be collectors' items, aren't they? But yeah. I think the fact that this game was made from the ground up to actually originally, you know, they they had that that Neo Geo aesthetic and the fact that it has to run on that machine in mind. Mm. It's, it's very much for the it, hardcore so. though, isn't it? This. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can buy it on the switch for like a tenner. You know, if you just want to play the game, I wouldn't fork out 400 quid for it on the Neo Geo. If all you want to do is have a quick blast of it, but for collectors, it's very cool. Um, so you can, uh, I think you can nip onto their website right now. They're expected to ship that between uh, quarter four of this year and uh, quarter one of 2024. So I'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Now, uh, thank you to Gareth, who submitted this in our Discord. We do have a little Discord server if you want to hop on there. There is a channel in there where you can suggest new stories to talk about on the podcast. So we'll see a few in there every week, and it helps us out, you know, because we can't keep our eyes everywhere, so it's quite handy to have a few extra ones. This is quite a cool little article, though, on a modern gaming website called custompc.com. Well, actually, it's all about PC building, but obviously the gaming's a big uh, kind of focus on the website too. And there's an article here by uh, a writer called Edward Chester, and the title is CRT is still king of the gaming monitors. Fact. So interestingly, he's got what looks to be in a gorgeous 21-inch Sun CRT. That's very nice, that one is. Yeah, it looks, you know, flat screen as well. I'm not sure whether the Sun ones are based on kind of some kind of Trinitron technology. Um, I've got a similar looking one that's a Mitsubishi one. It's got um, their Diamondtron, which is based on Trinitron technology with another you know, flat screen. Um, but yeah, so basically what he's done is, it's a bit of an experiment really. He's, he swapped his modern gaming monitor for this uh, nice old school Sun CRT and attempts to do both some modern gaming and some retro gaming and talks about the 
the advantages of it. Now, I think, you know, for those of us who are into retro gaming, we obviously know stuff like, you know, the fact that LCDs have native resolution. So, for example, if you want to play a retro game on an LCD, it's still got to kind of blow it up to that resolution. But instead of, they mentioned in this article, instead of a pixel being one pixel on the screen, it will blow it up so it covers like four different pixels, you know, so so it fills the screen. So it always means that games are not designed to run at the native resolution of an LCD screen always tend to look a bit blocky and washed out. Whereas on a CRT, they can kind of adjust to any resolution that, you know, as far as it can go up to anyway. So, I mean, interestingly, the, the assessment of this is he plays modern games with it. Obviously, there are problems with using a CRT for modern games. The main one being that most of them are not widescreen. So, you know, you're going to have to, you know, if you're playing like the latest Call of Duty on there, it's, uh, you know, you're not going to be playing it in 4K or 1080p. You're going to have to scale it down to a 4x3 format to play in a modern CRT. He also mentioned something like, you know, obviously a lot of modern LCD screens now, the refresh rate is pretty high. I mean, I think you can get like 240 hertz LCD screens now. And I think, you know, my CRT goes up to about 100 which, you know, for playing classic games is fine, but you might get a bit of motion blur if you're used to playing at higher resolutions. But then he goes into playing retro games on there, and that's where his opinion completely changes. He said, you know, the sharpness and the smoothness that you get on low-resolution games makes it so much better than uh, even the best LCD screens. Yeah, well, a lot of them were designed with that in mind, and um, Mm. it's really good, but he's also talking about, you know, buying them and stuff, and... uh, yeah. It could be quite tough. I don't know if you've ever got a CRT kind of delivered to your house. Um, the way that they're packaged can uh, sometimes be questionable. I've seen awful images of like CRT smashed up that people have bought on eBay and stuff. And, you know, delivery drivers haven't really cared that there's a old CRT in there and it's just been completely trashed. Yeah, because I mean, I've got my, yeah, that, that 21-inch CRT that I've got, I actually went to pick that up from it was a guy that was a graphic designer in Derby about 10 years ago and it was a token gesture thing you know I'd give him a pound for it and I went to pick it up and that monitor would have sold for you know seven eight hundred quid when it was new um so it was a very nice screen but it went it was that era wasn't it like a decade or so ago you could get really good bargains on CRTs well, I remember well, people you buying, were just chucking them out you know people yeah. were just literally leaving them on the street it was <laughs> it was pretty mad well, I remember you getting a, uh, haven't you got a Commodore like 1942 or 1960? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you get that for when you bought it? Like about, that was about a decade About 50 ago, quid, it? I think. Yeah. yeah. And another I was one, on uh, one of those. I went to see a play and um, I think it was a, a Commodore 1080 and yeah. um, I was sitting there watching the props on the stage and I was like, mm. there's a nice CRT. <laughs> and I went to the technicians and I said, oh, Oh, you've got a, a Commodore monitor there. You know, I'll pay you a couple of quid. They said, have it. Like that. Right. And I just went yeah. off with it. And uh, I've still got that. Really good. Because I was bidding on uh, one of those Comod- Commodore monitors not, not long ago, actually. And I think it went to 200 quid and I bowed out. So the price of them now, I think, because it's, you know, like you said, a lot of people threw them out. So they're getting quite scarce. But interestingly, I mean, if you go on, you know, sites like Reddit and a lot of gaming forums as well, there's definitely a movement of kind of CRT connoisseurs, you know, who at least have one CRT on their desk. I see that quite a lot now. I've started to in... see the PVMs quite a lot. Um, yeah. Even even at the uh, Kickstart show, I saw quite a few really nice PVMs and uh, they're, they're amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they look gorgeous with, you know, the old school RGB games. So, no, Joe, you've got a couple of uh, 
CRT. Are you still using those? And they've kind of had to move into a smaller room recently. Uh, I've got one wrapped up in the attic at the moment, and then um, I've just got an old, you know, Sony fourteen inch with the you know with the uh, VHS player built into the bottom of it. Yeah. But I've got it. Um, I've yet to use it. But I've got it set up in in my my new little office. Um, but it's on the top, you know, like these IKEA. Is it called a clax? Like where it's like oh, you yeah, know, yeah. when it's got like the five kind of slots high, and you can put the drawers in it. It's on top of one of them, so it's like optimum height for standing and playing with a light gun. And that was the idea. Like I'll put it up there, and then I'll set the PS2 up, and I'll play like Time Crisis Two, and you know, um, you know, maybe there's some Dreamcast like Hazard and stuff. And I've just not done it yet. <laughs> well, well, they always used to. Um... They always used to attract cats as well because they were like hot yeah. and, you know, the cats would go up there, crawl in it and then you get loads of cat hair in the CRT. I remember that. Yeah, I've seen that great meme of a, a cat draped over a CRT in 1995 and then in 2015, a, a cat trying to drape over a flat screen like 40-inch mm. <laughs> telly. Doesn't look the most comfortable, but um, it is nice to see that, you know, there are still people that, you know, do appreciate CRTs and uh, it just kind of feel like there's, you know, definitely a movement towards people actually seeing the benefits of them now because you know back in like 2005 2006 like all of us I couldn't wait to get rid of mine I remember I had a a CRT monitor on my main PC and then there was a computer store down the end of our street and my housemate came back and he's like uh you know they're selling LCD monitors now for like 150 quid in there so it's finally affordable to go and buy them so we both bought them that day and then I had this massive like 21 inch CRT. I took it to work and kind of just dumped it in the in the IT department room. And then, uh, yeah, I remember the, the head of IT gave me a bit of bollocking going, why did you leave that in there? We saw you on the cameras doing it, bringing it in on a Sunday night. <laughs> well, well, those 21 inch ones were absolutely giant as well, weren't they? Like oh, yeah. as they got bigger, they got weightier and heavier. And uh, yeah, I, I used to have it on top of the Amiga 4000. And I was like, yeah. is this going to take the weight? <laughs> I remember he said he's like uh, I said oh, I thought you might want a use for it you know you might find a use he's like no I'll recycle it for you um, not that I think there was much to recycle in those monitors back then but um, yeah it's good to see that people are still you know caring for them and uh, even though they are becoming a bit scarce and a bit more expensive you know if you have got CRTs keep them going because you know for retro games they do look better I'm going to put that out there I know people will argue uh, now let's talk about this before we chat about uh, first person shooters with our special guest this week um, I'm always a big fan of Double Dragon games. We were talking about this actually, weren't we, Joe? That um we've been we we're talking about double dragon games that we liked. You weren't a fan of Double Dragon 3, is that right? Yeah, you know what? I was um I've been playing Sega Mega Drive with my daughter recently, and I I you know put on a Double Dragon 3, the Sega Mega Drive version, obviously, and uh the Sacred Stones, is it, or I think it's called, or the Rosetta, Rosetta Stones. Stones, that's it. And uh, we borrowed it or rented it when we were children, me and my brother, and I remember it being really tough and uh it's got a bit of a name for itself and not being the best game these days. And uh, I played it and it's just janky, man. Like, I really like the art style in it and I really like the uh, the sound and everything, but just the fighting in it, like, it just doesn't work. Like, I was like, am I playing? I even swapped controllers around. I was like, this is going terribly. This is really hard. Like, you just get completely, like, overrun, you know, by so many people. But you said you really liked it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it might be a case of rose-tinted spectacles. I mean, yeah. my brother and I used to play it on the Amiga. We played it loads mm. back in the day. I haven't really played it for about maybe 20 years, maybe yeah. a bit longer. So maybe I need to boot it up and give it another try. But in my mind, that was always kind of my favourite, you know, apart from the original one on the arcade. Yeah. That was probably my, yeah, my, I, my I go-to Double Dragon game. I always enjoyed the home versions, like, uh, back in the days. It was always nice to whip it out and be like, yeah, Double Dragon. Yeah, there's there's Double Dragon Four as well, I believe it was. It came out on the Switch a few years ago, and I think it was Double Dragon Neon as well. It was Double Dragon. F- was it four? Yeah, it was four, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it five? 
The fives are one on the Jaguar, I think, which is that weird kind of, it's more like a Street Fighter kind of game. Yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. There was a Double Dragon, there was Super Double Dragon for the Super Nintendo, and then there was Double mm. Dragon 5 uh, for Super Nintendo as well, and then there was Double Dragon for the Neo Geo and Jaguar, like you say, just a bit all over the place. But yeah, there was Double Dragon. Yeah, numerically, it's all over, Yeah, but it? Yeah, Double <laughs> Dragon 4 was to. the last one we got in, in 2017. <laughs> But yeah, we are now getting now. Double Dragon Gaiden, Rise of the Dragons, uh, at the end of this month. And uh, apparently this was announced a little while ago, and I only noticed it because it was on my Xbox home screen. Recommended I download it ready for uh, Game Pass at the end of this month. And I was like, well, we've got to talk about that. <laughs> so uh, Billy and Jimmy are back, um, and they're going to be... Uh, what about this for an original storyline? They're going to take on the New York City gangs. All right, yeah. Um, Save the world after a nuclear war. This one, though, so okay. that's quite different to previous games. The mutant um, games, so yeah, yeah. So graphically, I've got to say, it doesn't look like any of the previous Double Dragon games that I've played. Definitely a unique art style to it, but I do really like it. It looked very cartoony. This one, you, you know what? I, at first glance, so I what I looked at it and I was like, I don't like this. You know, like within the first ten seconds, I was like, yeah. I don't really like the look of this. And then the more I watched it and looked at it, I was like, you know what? This graphically, the graphic style of this actually makes sense because if you kind of cast your mind back to the original kind of arcade or Master System NES versions of Double Dragon 1 and 2, they've got like a bit of a... The reason I didn't like this art style, this art design, was they kind of had like big heads, like their heads didn't look in proportion. I was like, oh, it looks a bit chibi. But when you look back, that's what what they look like in the original Double Dragon 1 and 2. They've got that kind of crunched down look. And I was like, actually, this... It's probably just a natural progression of that art style, of that design. It's just now the beautiful pixel version of it, like, you know, on modern console. So it, it grew on me in a matter of a couple of minutes, but I, I really like it now, like, looking back at it. And I think gameplay style as well, I mean, sp- it kind of yeah. looks, yeah, really, really slick. A mm. um, lot of different enemies on here as well, a load of weapons, some very over-the-top weapons by the looks Rocket of it Rocket launchers too. and stuff, yeah. Yeah, which is always fun to see. Um, and again, I mean, I've only watched, there's a little, um, it's kind of a minute 20 gameplay footage and you kind of see you know some of the different maps in here as well, you know, on top of a train, on a cliffside as well. You can get, like you could in... Um, some of the older Double Dragon, Double Dragon 3, there was, there was a shop you could go to and mm. buy things, wasn't there, upgrades and things. Looks like you can in here as well. There's exploding barrels, you know, some some of the old school bosses are in here as well, by the looks of it, which is quite nice to yeah. see. Got a lot of punks in here, you play on. Obviously, there's always a scene on these retro beat-em-ups where you're on a moving underground train. Yeah, gotta yeah. be, gotta be. <laughs> it's gotta yeah. be. Yeah. Either a train or a lift <laughs> towards the end. Yeah. Um, some extra characters as well. Um, Uncle Mattin and, uh, is it Marion? I think her name is. Um, mm. which, you know, look quite unique. Uh, Marion, the woman, she's got guns and stuff as a default, and then Uncle Mattin has a riot shield, which looks quite interesting. But yeah, coming out at the end of yeah this yep. month. July 27th. Yeah, July 27th. And like I say, straight to Game Pass on Xbox, but also coming out on, you know, PlayStation, Steam, etc., uh, which is nice and to Switch. see. And Switch. Uh, and uh, Couch Co-op as well, which is always good. I'm just noticing as well how croaky all of our voices are because we've been oh, yeah. shouting and stuff. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's from uh, singing along to uh, John Hare's set probably on Saturday night. <laughs> 
But yes, I mean, I always love these couch beat em ups, and that that to me is essential. That's in there as well, Joe. It's got to be, you know, mm. it's got to have the couch mode in there, hasn't it? You know, online plays cool, but you know, you want to punch your mate in the arm when he beats you. That's what we like. So uh, if you want to get hold of that, it comes out end of this month. I'll link that up. And everything else we talk about, you'd have to Google around to save you the job. Uh, check out your podcast show notes app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, this week's special guest, David L. Craddock and Richard Moss, they're coming up in just a moment. We're going to be talking about their amazing new first-person shooter documentary. Just before we do that, let's take a second to give a massive thank you to this episode's sponsor, and it is a sponsor that's supported this podcast for many years now, our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, of course, Netflix, we all know what they've been doing recently, you know, the uh, blocking out your friends from using your your passwords or your family members without paying extra money now. And obviously the price of them seems to go up all the time, these services too. The thing about it is though, even if you are paying, you know, top dollar for your Netflix subscription, you're not getting the full amount of content that you could get because Netflix has actually got tens of thousands of shows and you're only seeing a fraction of that. For example, what about this for an analogy? Watching Netflix without using something like ExpressVPN, it's kind of like paying for a gym membership, but they only let you use a treadmill. There's a lot more out there, so we want you to try it all. Now, did you know that Netflix have actually got almost 100 different server locations around the world? And due to licensing and regional differences, there is a lot of movies and TV series that are on different Netflix libraries around the world that normally you can't access. But using ExpressVPN, it unlocks all that, doesn't it, Ravi? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it has a really fast speeds as well. I, I, I get zero buffering when I'm using it, and it streams in HD as well. Um, compatible on all your devices. So with your phones, your laptops, your smart TV, you can kind of have it set up on there, fire it up. And, uh, you know, I've been watching some stuff, uh, just like Pulp Fiction, which is an absolutely awesome film, on the Canadian Netflix, uh, Spirited Away as well, which is a, a, an absolutely great anime movie, and uh, Jurassic World on the Hong Kong Netflix. Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, all you do, it's dead simple to use as well, isn't it? It's literally press a button. It's also got the uh, the advantage of encrypting your data so you can browse the web securely as well. And it is one click and then it makes it seem like you're in different parts of the world. So it means it unlocks all these libraries. Not just Netflix as well, works in other streaming services, even stuff like BBC iPlayer, Hulu, YouTube, all of those as well. So stop paying full price for streaming services and only get an access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth. You know, ExpressVPN pays for itself, doesn't it? Because you get access to all this much more stuff. So why don't you use our exclusive link and let them know that we sent you. You'll be helping out the podcast for doing it. And uh, get yourself three months of ExpressVPN for free on top of a one-year plan. So use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash retro. That's expressvpn.com slash retro. I'll put that in our show notes as well. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. A reminder as well that we do have a patron that supports this podcast. If uh, you want another way to uh, just basically throw a couple of quid into the tip jar, help us keep the lights on as well. Um, you get lots of extra stuff for your money too. We give you uh, extra few news stories. You get a longer episode each week. We chop all the adverts out. You get it out of free. You get it early when we can get it edited in time. And also if you join us as a gold member or above, you get access to an exclusive bonus podcast. Of, uh, we're going to be recording a new episode of this. 36 episodes of the Retro Hour After Hours. So all the details so join us on Patreon or on our website right now at theretrohour.com. Right, then next we're going to be going inside the world of first-person shooters celebrating this incredible new documentary where a couple of the guys are behind it and they're good friends of the podcast. David L. Craddock and Richard Moss are our guests next on the Retro Hour podcast. 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And actually, it is two friends of the podcast who it's always nice to catch up with because they've worked on some incredible projects over the years. And uh, this one could be the biggest one to date because we're going to be talking about the ultimate FPS documentary with David L. Craddock, who's an author of titles like Long Live Mortal Kombat and the brilliant Arcade Perfect book. And Richard Moss, who of course we spoke to when he did the Secret History of Mac Gaming and of course that incredible Shareware Hero book as well so nice to have you guys back on welcome david and richard hey thanks for having us good to be here again yeah nice to have you back on now we're, we're going to talk about this uh massive new documentary for you know fans of first person shooters i think uh this really is the best love letter i've seen to that genre i mean uh, you guys sent me a screener copy over yesterday and that clocks in at around four and a half hours already <laughs> and i've got to say it was so gripping i'm already like halfway through it uh, just in like the last 12 hours or so and uh, i know david you're the director you both um write and produce on it as well so Let's kind of start with you, David. It'd be interesting. So I know you obviously did that book about first-person shooters, but kind of going back to you know your personal relationship with S- FPS games, where did that kind of come from then before starting on the project? Yeah, I'll let Richard talk about starting on the project since he actually predates me by like, I don't know, two or three months. But my personal history with first-person shooters dates back to probably sometime in late 1992 i was sick from school uh my mom would not let me stay home alone because she knew i just play computer games so i had to go with her to her uh, medical transcription class and i was camped out at a desk in the back of the room and all the students were doing whatever they were doing there probably typing transcribing and um the teacher was this old lady named sally so she looks up and she goes david and I was very surprised because this wasn't even my class and I was already in trouble with the teacher. So she said, come up here a minute. So I did. And she showed me the game she was playing and she was just running down this corridor, like a million miles an hour, blasting Nazis. And that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So she gave me the floppy disks for Wolfenstein 3D mm-hmm. shareware episode. And I've been shooting Nazis and demons and aliens and anything else in front of me ever since. <laughs> what about you, Richard? David's a few years older than me, so I I was too young for Wolfenstein 3D. But uh, I remember quite early on, on on the family Macintosh, playing a game called Spectre, a, a wonderful tank shooter, sort of like Battle Zone, where you've got a first-person wireframe view and you, you go around and you're shooting like these other sort of triangular 3D tanks. And I just, I loved that. I could play that for hours and just scooting around the arena picking up the the little uh green disc thingies that make a nice sound when you pick them up and and going through the levels and then shortly after that i had a game called super maze wars which was a as as the name would suggest a a maze game first person maze Mm. game it was a descendant of uh, (laughs) the original fps maze from back in the 70s but jazzed up to the new era a bit uh, and then a couple of years after that, uh, I got introduced to first-person shooters proper through Marathon and Duke Nukem 3D, and I think mm. I saw Doom around then as well. Amazing. Well, I mean, obviously we're going to get into some of the games that you cover in the documentary, um, but it'd be nice to find a you know kind of find out why you guys got involved in a documentary about the the evolution of first-person shooter games because I know this has been in the works for quite a few years now. So, how did you get on board, Richard? So. I got an email out of the blue from Robin Block, our executive producer. I'd, I'd never met him, never talked to him before. And 
I didn't know what he wanted, but I, I've got this email in my inbox. This is about uh, the end of February, early March uh, 2021. And he's just saying that he's, he's started working on this documentary about first-person shooters, and he'd like to talk to me. That's all the information I had. And I'm, okay, I'll hop on a call. And in the course of chatting to him about this film, he decided that he wanted me to work on it. And he basically pitched me on being a writer and producer. <laughs> Just out of the blue there, from nowhere, because he had read one of my articles. He'd read my history of first-person shooters on Ars Technica, which is like a 8,000-word or something like that article that I wrote a few years before that and then uh, it was uh, maybe a month two months after that at my suggestion we brought David on initially as a consultant and then he sort of just got more and more involved from there yeah and initially um, I just I attended all the meetings I gave suggestions when asked for them and when the time came to put our Kickstarter campaign together, I think the backbone of that campaign, besides the awesome trailer that uh, my co-director Chris Stratton made, was we all, we needed a great cast. And so I worked with um, Susan Lusty, who's very famous in the video games PR space, and one of her fellow PR managers, and the three of us, and Richard... I believe uh, we all four just kind of uh, cast nets as far and wide as we could. Um, I got some people such as John Carmack, who, who wrote back and said, I, I usually don't like to come out of my programmer's den for these things, but I, I, I like talking to you. So uh, we got him on board. We got John Romero, um, Cliff Blazinski, a whole bunch of people. So I was pretty happy with uh, the cast we were able to put together. And then the Kickstarter campaign got going and this was my Robin Block out of the blue experience. Everyone has to have one. And mm. uh, he said, David, I would like you to co-direct with Chris. And I said, oh, um, I've never directed anything before. I think he said co-write and, and co-direct. And I said, um, I'm interested. Why? And he said, well, you've been to all the meetings. And I said, I thought I had to be there. Um, I don't know that that's a criteria for making someone a director, but um <laughs> he, he explained that he also had gotten uh, Chris's feedback and Chris wanted to work with me because of a book I wrote, uh, Rocket Jump. And so I just became the co-director, co-writer and producer and whatever else they have me do from there. Well, obviously, you know, for any documentary that wants to tell a story, particularly one as in-depth as this, that spans, you know, over four decades. I mean, how did you decide on the, the structure of the documentary? Yeah, that comes in large part from... Creative VC, this company's previous films. Uh, so they'd done In Search of Darkness, which is a, a really big uh, horror documentary, 1980s horror films, and In Search of Darkness Part 2, and they were in the process of finishing In Search of Tomorrow, which is their sci-fi film. And the idea was that this would be branching out the format to video games. So I had a basic structure, which was that we were supposed to go year by year through the whole history and uh, have these individual segments per title. But because we're doing video games and because we're trying to do an entire genre's history, we had to make some adjustments to, to make that format work. So initially I wrote a synopsis that was like, okay, this is if everything could go perfectly and we had no time constraints, 
these are all the games that we would cover. We could get the interviews if, if we didn't have to worry about any issues. And there's like a hundred games on there or something, um, maybe more. And it was laying out the basic structure, which is essentially that we, I thought we needed to go back to the, the very beginning and get to the roots. Not, don't, let's not start at Wolfenstein 3D. No, that's, that's the game that made the genre what it is. That, that's, yeah, that, that's what codified the genre. That was the formative game. But the ideas were circling around way before that. And basically the ideas go back to 1973 with a game called Maze, or Maze War, as it's better known today, which was made on a mainframe and a, a PDP-10 mini computer by a, a bunch of high school students. And then one of those high school students and some MIT students, one of whom ended up being co-founder of Infocom, the text adventure company, which I always think is, is just delightful that one of the guys who made Zork invented first-person shooters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad claim to fame, inventing uh, adventure games and uh, first-person shooters, is it? <laughs> yeah. And so from there... From from there, it's like let's 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 evolve. Let's see how the genre evolves, and and let's try and get the big notes, but also periodically go out into like some themed topics. Well, I love that history as well because you write them in a lot of kind of you know smaller documentaries or YouTube series. They generally always start around you know the early nineties with Wolfenstein, but it's really interesting to see that kind of seventies and the eighties kind of legacy of the genre as well. Um, and I found the story of Mace quite quite interesting as well. I mean, for people that are not familiar with that game. Is there much in there that we'd recognise from first-person shooters? I heard it's even got like online play as well. Yeah, there's there's a lot in there. And I, I took most of my cues from the interviews I did with uh, co-creators Greg Thompson and, and Dave Lebling. Uh, those are two of the co-creators we could get. Took most of my cues from Richard, but I mean, if you look at Maze, you can see online deathmatch. There were bots, <laughs> AI-controlled bots, uh, you could name your avatars, which was just uh, an eyeball that was added later. Before that, it was just your name kind of floating around. Uh, there was a map editor, you could call it. There was a spectate mode just for people to watch. So it actually planted the seeds for a lot of what become what would become staples in the genre. And did Battlezone have a lot of influence on the early development of the genre, would you say? That's, that's one that we... It was never technically known as a first-person shooter, but Richard and I wanted to include it because it's kind of subversive. Just because you don't think of a game as part of a genre doesn't mean it's not. I actually find genres really restrictive. They're great for marketing people who need bullet points to put on you know, marketing copy, but the way I looked at Battlezone, the way we both did was, well, it's first-person, you're shooting things, and that's why we included it. I think it'll just surprise people and make them kind of rethink uh, what they consider it F an FPS. There's even, I guess, a sort of a strafing modality too, depending on how um, how awkward or not awkward you found the, the joystick setups. It was always <laughs> kind of tricky for me to play, but I liked it when I tried it. I especially liked the, uh, you know, the, the scope that you looked through. Well, Richard, I know you've obviously covered Mac gaming in depth in the past. Um, obviously, your amazing book, um, and the Mac actually contributed to the first-person genre, uh, particularly with one game called A Colony, which, w- were you a fan of that game back in the day? Because I know that was a bit divisive from what I've seen. It seems to be a bit of a love-hate kind of game. Some people adore it. <laughs> other people don't think it deserves its place in the uh, you know, the Hall of Fame of first-person shooters, if you like. 
Yeah, well, the funny thing about the colony, and and to to answer your question, I wasn't into it back in the day because I didn't know about it until I was like a teenager, so many years later. But the the thing about the colony is that it is just sadistic and so hard. It David Smith, the guy who who made it, he thought, as many designers did in that era, that. He had to make the game unnecessarily difficult so that you felt like you were getting your money's worth. You had to derive value by hitting your head against the wall, shouting, why does this game hate me? And so he would throw in things like, you pick up a cigarette, you die instantly, just just for the hell of it. And uh, at the very beginning of the game, uh, you're in darkness, you walk up to this panel, it's basically the only thing you can see. And one of the buttons will turn on the light and like power up the state, the the ship that you're on, so that you can start playing the actual game. The other button will kill you instantly. It's mm. uh, right from the very beginning. And and then uh, when you want to get off the ship and and out into this area that was sort of inspired by Battlezone, that you have to cross to get to the the main part of the game, which is this multi-story uh, building thing, this uh, colony facility. To get out, you've got to go through an airlock. And what he didn't realize, actually, this was not something that he intentionally made obtuse, but he thought it would be intuitive that you go into an airlock, you turn around, you you close the door behind you because it's an airlock, and then you turn around and you go out the the external door and, and heaps and heaps of people would, would just open one door, walk through, open the other door, die. So you mentioned Infocom before. That kind of reminds me of some of the incredibly harsh puzzles in games like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, where you do just the tiniest little thing and that's it, you'd be instantly dead and it was so frustrating. Yeah, except this time you got to see it in vivid black and white. But the game it, the game itself, if, if, you, if you can get past the difficulty, is actually fascinating. There's a, there's a really intri- intriguing story and uh, the world building, I think, is, is, is really in- interesting. Uh, I... I had a lot of fun playing it with a cheat app to give me like infinite health so that I didn't have to worry about getting killed all the time. Yeah, and I guess we've always got uh, YouTube videos of walkthroughs if you need a bit of a helping hand these days <laughs> if we didn't have back in the day. <laughs> well, I mean, as we got into the 90s, I mean, obviously id Software became, you know, the kings of the FPS genre, and you, you've had uh, both John Romero and John Carmack on the documentary, so tell us a bit about, you know, talking to them about those early days when they, they were getting into the genre and their, their entry into it. What did you learn from them? Yeah, so for the interviews, I conducted all of those, and, and Richard and I would uh, put questions together. You know, there were definitely games that he knew better than I did and vice versa, so we'd start with some questions and then always have the other read over them to see if there's anything we could add. For it Software, definitely made my, my favorite first-person shooters with the exception of Half-Life. So I've talked to Romero and Carmack both, as well as, you know, Tom Hall, Adrian Carmack, et cetera, um, several times. So for for those interviews in particular, I was, <laughs> you can ask Richard, I was getting like ultra specific with some of the questions because I knew they'd answered them before and I knew they'd answered them now, but on film that we could, we could use it for some great segments. Um, mm. So I, I think that from them, I really, we really made a point to talk about not just how the games were made, but how the atmosphere affected players, you know, how important Doom's lighting was to its atmosphere, because I've always been a firm believer that 
Doom, particularly the original, is an action horror game as much as it is an action game. It's why I prefer yeah. it over Doom 2, even though Doom 2 has um, a much more balanced set of uh, monsters to fight. Um, so that was fun. And then Quake, you know, we got Carmack and Romero and Adrian Carmack all to talk about just how difficult Quake's development was. Not many people, very, very few had made true 3D engines and, and none had made one that approached the sophistication of Quake. So that's something we wanted to do with the documentary. We didn't want it all to be happy-go-lucky, nostalgic, if you will. Um, we wanted to to get into some, some really... Um, you know, truth-telling in there as well. And you mentioned, you know, Wolfenstein 3D, obviously that was kind of the, you know, I, I guess we call it the first, you know, today it would be a AAA game, wouldn't it? Even though it was a shareware model, which was quite interesting. I mean, do you think the fact that those early id games, you know, were, you know, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom in particular were, were shareware, did that model help with their popularity? It definitely Massively. did. Massively. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, even Carmack said, now this is this is where an asterisk comes in, like, Carmack said Doom was installed on more computers than the latest version of Windows, which would be 95. But of course, Windows 95 was not free. The Doom shareware episode was. So that's kind of an asterisk there. But also, um, this is kind of something that, uh, and I want Richard to to jump in with me as well. But one reason we showed games like, uh, like Maze and The Colony was because very few people had heard of them. And you ask yourself why? Well, you had to have very specific uh, computers and equipment to play them, whereas Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, anyone that had a PC with back then very kind of more or less rudimentary specs could get a free copy of the shareware episodes and play them. But that wasn't the case with these older games. And in fact, id Software made FPS games before Wolfenstein. They made Hover Tank and Catacomb 3D, but those were distributed again to a very small subscription base of uh, Softest Magazine subscribers. So that just kind of influenced the first pers- first FPS anyone would play and why it was usually one of those popular id games. Yeah, and Wolfenstein 3D and Doom were basically the perfect shareware games because the whole uh, shareware model is is based upon making people want to to download the thing because there's a bit of there's a bit of buzz, there's a bit of hype going around and they're like, okay, this is worth downloading or it's worth paying $5 to buy a, a disc from from some catalog or from a store or there's even like vending machines you get them from in some areas and uh, then when you play the thing a a really good shareware game would just wow you it'd be something you've not seen before not you've not experienced before and you have to you just you feel you have to have more of that and that's what Wolfenstein 3D and Doom both did they they were both something new that people hadn't experienced before and they made such a strong first impression i know probably millions of people have only ever actually played the first episode of each of them Mm. but millions thought i've got to have more of this and and they found a way to to give id software money so they could buy the rest of the episodes or they waited a couple of years for the retail releases yeah, that's that's what happened to me, actually, Richard. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, that little old lady gave me the Wolfenstein shareware, and I kind of thought that was the game, but it wasn't until Doom when, you know, at the end, you'd have those end screens saying, like, oh, you've only played, like, a third of the game, or in Wolfenstein's case, a sixth, and if you call this number and give us 
you know, a credit card number. I actually had my mom, I think I was 11 when Doom came out. I had my mom call and she gave their credit card number to these weird people in, in Texas and Doom came like three weeks later. It's very exciting. <laughs> Your mom was very trusting of you. <laughs> yeah, she was. I mean, she was letting me play Mortal Kombat and stuff. Uh, the deal was, David, if you start going around trying to rip someone's heads off, you will be grounded. And I thought, well, I don't want that. So I never tried to kill anyone. I mean, I've still got a vivid memory of seeing Wolfenstein 3D, you know, as a kid for the first time in randomly a, a shop that sold stationery, you know, like pens and pencils. <laughs> and they had a word processing uh, PC in there that someone had booted up Wolfenstein 3D on. And I think it was probably that the fact that it, it could run on so many systems, because obviously we'll get into the increasing hardware requirements as the 90s went on, uh, particularly with ID's games. But I think that was probably an aspect of it that it would work on a lot of PCs that people already had, I imagine. It was the it was the Street Fighter 2 of, of computer games. You just saw it everywhere, <laughs> not just in arcades, not just at home in Wolfenstein's case. But yeah, I mean, this old lady, again, in, in my mom's medical class was playing Wolfenstein while the students were, you know, doing whatever they were doing. It was almost ubiquitous back then, at least for me. Well, how important was um, Wolfenstein's 3D's hidden rooms to the genre because uh, I heard they were, they were a bit of an afterthought which I, I found quite surprising when watching the documentary. Yeah, they uh, they provide a sense of discovery that, that people just, they love. And yeah, they, they were something that Carmack didn't want to do because they're sort of a hack. And Carmack being the, the amazing engineer, programmer, person that he is, he, he likes to have clean, pure code that is as perfect as possible. He doesn't want there to be flaws in his engine, much less intentional flaws that he's intentionally coded in there so that something like walls that you can you can push in and, and get behind uh, would, would require that they do. But Tom Hall basically talked him into it and uh, it, it worked brilliantly. And, and that, I think, ended up being one of the most memorable things about the game as people would they'd sort of whisper to each other about, oh, did you know you could get behind the wall there and there's some cool thing, there's some hidden Easter egg at this point here. And the, the, that idea then became a, a really core part of Doom and Doom 2 and, and onwards into the whole genre, that, that you'd have hidden things uh, in the levels. It definitely felt exciting in that, that early era, you know, the pre-internet days, because it would be kind of, you know, the legend that would be whispered around the school playgrounds and you'd read it in magazines, that, you know, and then it would inspire people to go home and boot the game up and try it for themselves and there's that, just that sense of magic when you discovered something that kind of felt like a hidden thing that not many people knew about in the game. It must have been quite magical. Uh, it's so funny as well to think about now that uh, back before we had uh, easy walkthroughs and stuff, people would, they'd boot up the game and they'd hear that you can get into some of the walls that there are these push wall things and so they just run around the entire game running into every wall just to <laughs> see if if maybe this is somewhere that you can get into yeah it was it was funny in wolfenstein because you know when you would press use or i guess open it would have been called <laughs> then you just got a little buzz if there was nothing to find there at least if you had a sound blaster card but in wolf or uh, doom You'd hear, uh, uh. so um, my friends and I had a much cruder expression for um, <laughs> testing walls. The mind is working overtime now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think I think Scott Miller put it best in our documentary when he said that the secrets gave you 
the impression of there being more to the world just than what you can see by default. Um, mm. I remember as a kid, I actually found the secret level. One of the jokes among the id guys was that they were basically making Pac-Man with guns because they knew even back then Wolfenstein 3D was visually impressive, but they were even getting bored making mazes because there was nothing really to it. You know, the lighting was all flat and the same. Uh, there was no, there were no height maps. It was just maze, 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 kill, kill, kill. And so as a joke, there is actually a secret level where you can run around and you have to run away from the ghosts from Pac-Man and find the exit. Yeah, stuff like that shows they had a great sense of humour as well and enjoyed what they were doing while they were making it, which is fun. Mm. Um, and obviously when Doom came along, I mean, I remember that being <laughs> such an event. And, uh, you know, because around that time I, I still had an Amiga. That was my main machine. I had a lot of friends that had Amigas. But all of a sudden, one by one, suddenly everyone started selling up and changing over to PCs just for this one game. Sure. Um, so what do you think made Doom so special? And why are people still playing that <laughs> game 30 years later? Oh, I... I can start us off with this because Doom is my favorite FPS of all time and I would argue the greatest, uh, the most influential. Um, Doom feels good even nearly 30 years later, 30 this December. It is it is smooth. The sense of speed is perfect. The feedback on the weapons is perfect. The, the lighting is so atmospheric. It draws you in the same way as a film like Aliens would, uh, fighting the monsters, just that sense of a 3D world, even though it wasn't true 3D. I mean, the first time I saw fireballs go like whizzing over my head and explode on a wall behind me, it was just the most immersive thing I've ever played. And I, I think Doom is still played today because the modding community is still making levels for it. Uh, and why are they doing that? It's just, I think it's because Doom, when John Carmack released the source code, a mere four years after Doom came out, which is always surprising to think about, he knew that people would have a blast with it and keep it updated. And the people have, there are all these source ports you can play that modernize the game in different ways. You can turn on free aim, jumping, crouching. Now I'm a purist. I don't use any of that stuff, but the fact that it's there means that new audiences can appreciate this almost 30 year old game and veteran doom space Marines like me uh, can always go back in and find something uh, to appreciate. And so, I think when, when the World Wide web, started to get popular or even ftp sites suddenly started seeing directories full of wad files and that just gave the game a whole new dimension didn't it it just kept it going and going yeah that was a big part of of doom's appeal and wolfenstein didn't do that i also think that i mean obviously deathmatch was was groundbreaking it's not something i really played i just had a modem and it was a like a 14.4 baud modem so you weren't really doing any deathmatching on that but um that was a that was a huge part of it too you know they're the the age-old stories of Doom multiplayer games just bringing uh, university and business networks to their knees because so many people were playing a Doom Deathmatch. I remember getting banned off our network at school. Yeah, you do what you have to it, do, yeah. man. If you got to play Doom, you do what you got to do. Yeah, people are trying to save documents and it's not working because there's no bandwidth left on the network. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I would make jokes with Richard and with Robin. Mike, so this is just a Doom documentary with a few other FPS games sprinkled in around it, right? That's that's what we're doing here. I had to be reined in a few times, I think. Well, uh, how much would you say the the FPS genre contributed to hardware sales? You know, particularly in the in the mid nineties, because I mean, I mentioned about you know my friends buying PCs to play Doom. Remember when Quake came along, and suddenly we had things like you know hardware three D rendering that started getting more demanding. I do remember it was a time of uh, you know regularly upgrading graphics cards if you wanted to be at the top of your game. Yeah, it was 
it was really from Quake onwards that the shooters were driving the technology uh, evolution, and most of that was down to Carmack specifically and his push to uh, keep just pushing the needle of, of what this what graphics could do and working closely with the graphics cards manufacturers to make his 3D engines super optimized with their 3D cards and if you if you were a gamer you wanted to have Quake 3 and Unreal Tournament and and that was like right at the end of the 90s that was the the big thing everyone had to get a new PC if they wanted to play those and play them at, at, at good quality settings because everything had moved so quickly like we can forget now where things are moving pretty slowly and you can have a five-year-old PC and still run the greatest, run the, the latest and greatest software, like 60 frames a second, and it looks great. Back then, things were cycling so quickly that every year you've got something that's suddenly obsolete. You need to upgrade if you want to keep up to date, if you want to be able to keep running the things. And I remember with Half-Life even, and my brother had a laptop uh, at, uh, for his school, and he got Half-Life on it, and it, it ran like a slideshow. It was hilarious trying to go through the that scene at the beginning where, where you're on the, the subway train thing, and I'm just watching it at maybe five frames a second, and I was still spellbound by it because it was such a great scene, but he's, his computer didn't have a, a, a high-end graphics card, and so because of how things were working back in those days, you, you basically couldn't run it at all. Well, Half-Life's a good um, title to discuss as well, because, I mean, obviously before that, it just kind of felt like FPS games were really all about that, that action, the shooting, they're just getting in there. But it felt like, you know, narrative and real in-depth story kind of came to the genre with, with Half-Life. Would that be fair to say? Well, it had been tried before Half-Life, but uh, Half-Life was the one that, that finally got it right, because... Uh, we, we've got uh, this great line in the film where um, one of the Team Fortress creators is saying it wasn't the story in Half-Life that was groundbreaking. It was the way the story was told. That that mm. way that it, it keeps you in control the entire time. You you don't get cutaways to, to a cutscene. You are in control of Gordon Freeman the entire time. You can look the other way and walk to the edge of the room when someone's talking or you can like stand right behind their head or something and having a laugh to yourself that that you are making fun of of the way the scripts have been written but it's so well scripted and so dynamic in its environmental storytelling that it changed the way people thought about storytelling in video games and no one before Half-Life had really gotten it right. Well, it felt like the genre became more accessible from the mid-90s onwards as well, because obviously consoles became 3D capable then, and we started to see you know, some actually really good ports to, you know, even systems like the Atari Jaguar had a great version of Doom on there, uh, PlayStation obviously had great versions, it was, you know, the N64, it's kind of uncustom version of Doom that, you know, was completely different to everything else but I think uh, there's one game that I remember suddenly all my friends really getting into and that of course was Goldeneye when that came along that that kind of felt like the first game that was really geared towards 
full-on multiplayer first and just that fun experience? I mean, how did, how did kind of having that, that multiplayer aspect, the couch gaming aspect of uh, console FPS games change the genre? So the irony of, of GoldenEye being this beloved multiplayer title is that it wasn't really ever planned and it kind of came together near the end of, of development. Um, we go over this in the documentary, but the, the GoldenEye team would kind of relax during their lunch breaks by playing Super Bomberman, and they really liked the split-screen aspect of it. So they just started tooling around with, with GoldenEye working on multiplayer, and they even had you know, their, their contact at Nintendo come to visit and say, what are you guys doing? And they were like, oh, we're making multiplayer. And he was like, that's nice, but you're not contracted for that. Could you finish what we're paying you to do? And, uh, <laughs> you know, even Carl Hilton, one of the artists said, yeah, that's totally fair. But they, they all really liked playing multiplayer. And so they got it, uh, got it up and running. Um, and that became this pivotal part of the game. I, I know that I, I would have friends over, and my sister's friends would hang out too. And it was like an arcade, like people were kind of not exactly in a line, but they would just kind of mill around until a controller opened up and then they would take it over. And there was just, even today, that's one of Nintendo's focuses in particular. You know, you have online multiplayer in a lot of their their first party games, but local play is just something special. And I think that was a, that communal aspect of GoldenEye's multiplayer was what really made it a mainstay and and still is today i mean a lot of it it was eclipsed very quickly especially in terms of controls by other first person shooters but the way i think of goldeneye is that it was kind of the wolfenstein 3d to halo's doom at least on consoles Mm. let's talk a bit more about the the documentary itself um and obviously We'll, we'll let people know and I'll link up, you know, how people can get hold of it and watch it. And I, one thing I loved, you know, watching the, the early screener that you, you guys were kind enough to share with me was um, how you managed to balance the, the technical aspects of game development and the, the more human stories of the creators behind the game. I mean, was that quite a balance to do then? So it wasn't too techie, but you actually got those human stories in there too? Yeah, it was very deliberate. And it, it's something that, that I really wanted to, to focus on I'm sure Richard and Chris agreed with me, but I didn't want this to just be kind of a reel of like epic moments. And, you know, I remember that from my childhood and and yada, yada. I wanted to tell a lot of these stories. And I think that's what, you know, Robin Block uh, was consistently impressed. He, he, he's the first person to admit that he's not much of a gamer, but he really enjoyed the stories behind a lot of these games uh, that, that Richard and I told through the scripts and that and that Chris brought to life through his editing. So I think that's important to remember is that these are people who, who were responsible for your favorite games. And the cool thing about our cast, which is almost 50 gaming legends strong, is that a lot of these people never really got much credit for what they did and so we're kind of giving them a limelight now which is fun i mean it was it was largely intentional that that it would be something that a general audience could enjoy because people dip in and out of genres that we're we're making this primarily for the fans but we want it to be an introduction to people uh, whatever their experience level is, maybe they are really hardcore into retro shooters and and they're perfect. They're they're our exact audience, but then maybe they're into modern shooters, like they they love playing Call of Duty or um, any of any of the big things like PUBG or whatever nowadays. 
and and this is their chance to to find out about all the rich history behind the genre or maybe they just played like goldeneye and halo and they adored those games and now they're like well what what was going on on the pc side that was interesting Mm. and and this is their chance to learn those stories or they were really into pc shooters and they ignored the console side and and they can learn about that there aren't going to be that many people watching this who've played every game and so we had to approach every segment as something that uh, is accessible and approachable and we're not assuming knowledge other than the absolute basics of of uh, of gamer jargon yeah, to, to kind of add on to that, um, everything Richard said is is spot on. We didn't want to assume anything, but we also looked for opportunities. Going back to what we said earlier about Battlezone and Maze and the Colony to kind of subvert expectations. And, and one way Chris and I did that was with the intro, you know, where all of our credits are rolling on the screen and it's transitioning through all these really AAA first-person shooters like Doom, Halo, GoldenEye, and I... Uh, I wanted to show those specifically because I think a lot of people, like we said earlier, would probably go into this assuming that the documentary is going to start with an id software FPS. So then you see kind of the who's who and you're getting excited like, yeah, Duke Nukem and and Half-Life, awesome. And then you're like, wait, Maze? What is this? And so it was a way to kind of prime people for people in the know for these legends yet to come, but hey, we're going to take you back and show you some games that many of you have either never heard of or have never thought of as FPS games. We touched as well on the you know the social aspect of it before. Um, you know, people booting up copies of Doom yeah. on their, their you know network at work, for example, or school. But obviously, as the nineties progressed, I mean, land parties became such a big deal, and even you know the early two thousands as well. And even today, when I go to retro gaming expos. You're always guaranteed to see a table of original Xboxes set up with Halo running on there and a little mini LAN party going on. I mean, do you kind of touch on the, the significance of LAN parties and uh, how important were they to the, the evolution of the genre? Do you talk about that in the documentary? Yeah, I, I wrote a segment that's uh, all about the uh, the LAN party culture and the rise of esports. And uh, it, it all ties into to, to Doom and, and Deathmatch and and. And even like way back at, at Maze in the beginning, you've got people playing these games against each other. For so many people, that's what the appeal is. It, it's being able to shoot your buddies and, and have a good laugh as you're playing along and screaming from the next room or, or yelling into a headset and typing something into to the chat box because it's just it's really fun to play against other people. And I have my own personal memories of going to like clan cafes in the the early 2000s to play Counter-Strike and, um, and Battlefield 1942 with my friends. And because I had a Mac at home getting absolutely annihilated by them because I'd never practiced and <laughs> this was the only time I'd ever play these games, but still having a blast. That sounds awesome. I, I would love for for you and I to, to talk more about that. I've never been to a land cafe, but but like Richard, I have my own memories. Um, every year until yeah. I think 2019 was the last year we did it because then we all decided to like get married and move to the four corners of the earth. Um, but I have my close friends from high school and from middle school until 2019, we would meet at uh, Jeff's house every New Year's Eve and it was like some great ceremony. We would all park and spend like 30 minutes carrying in 
our towers, our CRTs, our mice, our keyboard, our Sidewinder gamepads, whatever we needed. Um, we would get the computers all set up. One year we were waylaid by what Windows 98 called a network bridge, which worked the opposite of how you would think. The bridge was not letting us connect, and I feel like that's what bridges are meant to do. So we had to troubleshoot that. But we would play we would play Quake, we would play Half-Life, and you know, there are these little things, especially if you know the group of people that you kind of look to every year, like <laughs> One of our friends, Mike, was probably the least skilled. So if a game was coming down to the wire, we were each tied at like 19 kills a piece out of 20. The three of us would go Mike hunting just to get that last <laughs> easy kill to, to be the winner. So, yeah, I love, love LAN parties. And Richard did a great job with that segment. There's something so nostalgic about, you know, seeing images from those times as well when, yeah, I mean, you're right, you know, kids carrying like the massive pc tower cases and these big 21 inch crts around it's like i look at my little nephew now and he takes his nintendo switch around to his friend's house and i'm like yeah that's why you haven't got muscles that's what you know you need to carry exactly those it was all about health and staying in shape that's what pc gaming was about <laughs> never mind the uh, the four liters of cola that you drink while you're gaming well you have to you have to gain back some mass you have to cultivate mass after all that work Oh, maybe also, we, you know, we kind of touched on the WAD files on Doom as well. I mean, uh, what about the, the communities that are around these games as well? I mean, w which ones are still kind of the most active in terms of FPS games? And do you cover much of the modding scene in the documentary? Yeah, we, we, we didn't have as much room as I wanted. Uh, unfortunately, when you're trying to cover something that's so big and, and broad <laughs> in scope, some stuff has to has to be sort of shunted aside or it has to has to get less attention than you want. As it happened, because I was writing that script and, and a few other scripts at the end of the project, we were like way over length and we had to pull things back. And so I ended up having to to cut down the scope for these segments. Like, so modding was going to be looking at uh, the the culture of modding a bit more broadly and it was going to get into the, the Quake era and, and Half-Life era of modding. Uh, to to set up for mods becoming uh, commercial games, but because of time constraints, I had to really hone it in on just a couple of stories that I thought were were really strong, which are the basically the birth of modding in the early Doom days, with people first starting to tinker with the, the Doom editing utility, the DEU, which was this DOS program where you were. Uh, sort of going around and, and creating the geometry for the for the levels uh, all very much manually and it's quite hard to use but you could even load up id software's levels and and change them and for many people that was their entry point to modding it was they would take e1m1 and they'd change something like one of the guys that we interviewed richard gray who was a level designer on duke Nukem 3d and and one of the co-creators of Sin, and uh, a very famous game designer, his entry point to FPS games was hearing about this DEU, not believing it could possibly be a thing, and then booting it up on his PC and thinking, okay, I'm just going to open up this window that you can't go through at the beginning of E1M1 of Doom, and then I'll be able to go through it. And so he... He moved the, the top and the bottom of the window so that he could walk through, and he got into this area that probably no one had ever been into before. 
and then he 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 just he was hooked he had to start making stuff and so he would make his own levels and share them on the internet which is also what happened with uh, this guy who made a, a very famous mod called Aliens TC and that was sort of the main story that I told in this segment was the, the creation of that mod which is a phenomenal total conversion it was the first total conversion mod of Doom to become basically a game version of Aliens the, the classic sci-fi horror film and it's it's incredible game this this mod thing the the whole first level is really atmospheric and and you don't you don't even shoot any, anyone you just go around and get freaked out by how moody the world is and in my case get lost some of the creativity in those it's just jaw dropping isn't it so yeah. richard and i became virtual actors <laughs> for much of this movie um there were two ways we would get gameplay or capture gameplay. One was for our backers who pledged at or above a certain level. I think it was Quake Guy, but I don't really know the tiers. Yep. Um, okay, Quake Guy. So they could record. Uh, I'll let Richard talk more about this, but he kind of let them know what we're looking for, and they could send them their gameplay clips. But a lot of the clips, such as when you uh, you look at Maze War, the Colony um, in uh, Doom Aliens TC, Richard played that. And I have played uh, a lot of the games as well, all the id games, Half-Life. And you don't just... Normally, when you play FPS games, especially on a PC, you're, you're circle strafing, you're bunny hopping, you're rocket jumping, you're doing other jargony things. But for this, we really had to slow down, uh, turn off the HUDs to see as much of the game world as possible, usually use cheat codes, not only so we could survive things, but also so the screen wouldn't like flash red when you get hit or anything distracting like that and kind of do you know, play the game in a way that would accompany the story being told like when in the Doom segment John Romero talks about how he, how the first room that he made in Doom that really kind of set the tone for the level design and you know, it started out with really kind of um static ceiling heights like Wolfenstein, but he said, no, he wants to raise the ceiling. And so I actually captured that level and Chris did an effect where he kind of pulled the ceiling up. He stretched it so that we could show it getting taller. And then I used cheat codes to turn the lights on and off, things like that. And it was, it was really a lot of fun. There was another instance where John described, you know, picking up a blue key card, the lights go out and you're ambushed from behind. So I would spin around in that level when the lights went off and then kind of shake my mouse like, oh, I'm so scared to kind of, you know, uh, bring some visuals to the story. It was a lot of fun. But Richard's work with Maze War and the Colony in particular were, were great. Yeah, how did you approach those, Richard? Uh, well, I mean, with Maze War, it was really just a matter of how can I get this thing working? Because this is a 1973 game that was made for a mini computer and a mainframe acting in concert together. The mini computer would talk to the mainframe, which is uh, sort of the the referee of the match, and is is keeping track of everyone's computers and making sure they're all synced up. And so I had to find an emulator and and build it for Linux because it doesn't work properly on Windows or Mac, and then figure out with someone's help how to use it. And then because it's a multiplayer game, uh, just play with robot players 
and and then go around and try and make it as exciting as you possibly can when you've just got to an empty black world with lines for for the world for, for definitions or so I'm like typing in messages like gotcha and stuff to to try and make it a bit more fun and dynamic and and Chris uh, did a brilliant job uh lifting it even more with his editing and, and using some things that I didn't think he'd use that I just sort of left in in my clips because it was easier than editing to to leave in like me typing in and even with typos typing in the command to to go into the world to play maze and he he did did a really cool uh transition thing using that uh, early in the film and then with the colony it was taking the script uh, just as david had done and trying to get footage to uh, as best i could match what is going on there and so we've got in the interview david allen smith is describing this uh, experience he had of walking down a corridor and he knows that the game is going to crash when he turns the corner but he's so drawn into this world that he's created that he doesn't want to stop he wants to see what's around the corner and so i i went like all over the game trying to find a good hallway that i could use for this single clip and i eventually found a couple well, I mean, the amount of effort you put into it, I mean, it definitely shows. I mean, uh, you know, visually, it's an absolutely gorgeous film. Um, you know, you put so much work into that and it really shines. And the docu- you know, the documentary has some fascinating interviews in there as well. We already talked about John Romero and John Carmack as well. I mean, David, who else did you talk to for the documentary? Are there any, uh, any other people we should look out for and any memorable moments maybe from the interviews that stand out for you? So we have a cast of, of 48 uh, legendary designers, pro players, and subject matter experts, much like Richard and myself. And interviewing all of them was particularly fun. I really liked talking to Dennis Fong, who was known as Thresh, um, because this is something Richard and I talked about. It, it's almost a semantics issue. In the in the movie, his lower third, you know, his, his name on the screen is um, first, or his title is first pro gamer. And of course, there were gamers before him such as um, Becky Berger Heinemann, who had won gaming events. Like, she won this big Space Invaders competition that hosted by Atari, I think. But we decided, like, the difference there is that Dennis was the first person who didn't just win a tournament. He was playing games professionally. That was his job. He was was a pro cyber athlete, if you will. Um, So hearing those stories from Dennis was really cool. And he'd sent me this he found this youtube video of doom's deathmatch 95 tournament hosted by microsoft but i couldn't find it and richard did include it in his uh, script uh, from lands to legends about the rise of esports so i was it was really cool to see that in there and um yeah one of the ways we promoted the the movie actually i got to go with dennis to las vegas last october there was the so EBS, the um, Esports Business Summit, and every year they induct someone into their Hall of Fame, and I got to go on stage and induct Dennis into the Hall of Fame. So it was kind of a really cool extension of wow. the film, just getting to spend more time with him and talk with him. Um, I'm sure Richard has some moments that, that stood out to him in the interviews as well. Yeah, I mean, there are so many great things that came up in the interviews because not everything, unfortunately, was able to make it into the film because 
we're talking to people for like an hour, two hours each and 48 people. That's like, we, we recorded something like 80 hours of interview footage. And, and as long as the film is four and a half hours is a lot less than 80 hours. But, uh, I think for me, a lot of the highlights, uh, are actually coming from Warren Spector who took the interview very seriously. He's, he's a very deep thinker and, uh, he, he had, I thought some pretty profound insights into into game design and into why we play games as well as uh, uh, some inspirational words about uh, wanting games to be more than they are to 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 make games uh, not just something that's a fun experience but something that will change who you are as a person and and he speaks with such cachet and and wisdom uh, that uh, i i think it's a real highlight having him in the documentary as much as it was difficult editing him because he he says a lot of words and he speaks quite slowly but we we figured it out and we we made him sound uh, really good well guys i know there's been uh, you know several years put into this project and anyone that loves first person shooters you know that genre that is you know the biggest genre in video games today just has to watch this you know real love letter to it and like i said four and a half hours i mean you're not going to get much more in depth and I'm, you've got plenty of content there for a director's cut one day as well i imagine but for now that four and a half hours you know just absolutely incredible so i know everyone listening to this would be like well how do we watch it then so how, how can people get hold of it well go to um from july 6th until august 1st you can order the movie at fpsdoc that's doc.com um, I believe we're planning to ship quote unquote digital versions in August and the physical editions will ship out uh, later this uh, late summer early fall and you can also follow us at on Twitter at fpsdoc where we will be of course sharing where you can buy the film and also we have a lot of surprises filled for the month that the, the movie will be available for order some behind the scenes clips some um, excerpts from the movie some um, creator interviews all sorts of fun stuff planned wonderful well, i'll put a link in our show notes so everyone can just uh, click straight through to it david and richard it's always a pleasure talking to you thank you so much for coming on and uh, doing some fps reminiscing and uh, best of luck with it yeah thank, thank you. you very much